Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to a history of Europe, key battles, the Battle of Dieu of 1509, and the Portuguese Voyages of Exploration, Part 3 of 4. In August 1499, the sea captain Vasco da Gama returned to Lisbon after an epic two-year-long voyage of discovery to India and back. The dream of finding a sea route from Portugal, around southern Africa and onto India was finally realised after decades of endeavours. The whole of Christendom buzzed with the news and with thoughts about the opportunities the discovery would bring. King Manuel of Portugal's great ambition was to redirect the Asia-Europe spice trade from the overland routes through the Middle East to a new route around the southern coast of Africa under a Portuguese monopoly. If successful, not only would the Portuguese gain enormously financially, but they would weaken the economies of the Muslim East, especially Mamluk Egypt, which controlled trade routes between India and the Mediterranean. Manuel went as far as dreaming of wiping out the Mamluks and recovering for Christendom the holy places in Palestine. The successful voyage of Vasco da Gama appeared to bring the fabled realm of Prester John almost within reach, opening up the possibility of building an overland link to that Christian ruler, perhaps to the Red Sea. Just six months after de Gama's return, a vastly larger seat was ready to depart from Lisbon. Thirteen ships, twelve hundred men, and considerable investment by Florentine and Genoese bankers, eager to participate in the opportunities of the Indies. This next expedition, led by a nobleman, Pedro Alvarez Cabral, marked a shift from reconnaissance to commerce, and then conquest. Manuel went on to dispatch a series of overlapping fleets of increasing size to seize control of trade in the Indian Ocean. 
writes Roger Crowley in his book Conquerors, How Portugal Forged the First Global Empire. Quote, it was a supreme national effort that called on all the available resources of manpower, shipbuilding, material provision and strategic vision to exploit a window of opportunity before Spain could react. In the process, the Portuguese took both Europe and the peoples of the Indies by complete surprise. End quote. Manuel gave Cabral instructions to try and establish friendly relations with Christians, but for Muslims the strategy was virtually one of all-out war. Quote, if you encounter ships belonging to the Muslims of Mecca at sea, you must endeavour as much as you can to take possession of them, and of their merchandise and property, and also of the Muslims who are in the ships to your profit as best you can, and to make war on them and do them as much damage as possible as the people with whom we have so great and so ancient enmity. End quote. Cabral and his men arrived at the city of Calicut, where the old Zamorin, the local monarch, had died. It was now his nephew who ruled the kingdom as the new Zamorin, and Cabral hoped for friendly relations than before. After tense negotiations and exchange of hostages, it was agreed that the Portuguese would be able to trade in the port. Yet after three months it became clear that Arab merchants were being given preferential treatment. The Portuguese seized a Muslim-owned ship that was leaving for Jeddah, claiming its departure violated their agreement with the Zamorin, that they would be given first call in loading spices. In retaliation, an angry mob of Muslim merchants gathered in the city streets and attacked the Portuguese trading post. Seventy men were trapped inside and after heavy fighting tried to make a break for the boats and most were killed by the mob. After hearing their message of apology from the Zamorin, Cabral assumed he must have approved the attack and so moved to vengeance. He ordered the capture of ten Arab ships in the port and the killing of all those abroad. He carted off their cargoes of spices and burned the vessels. Next he aimed his cannons at the city and let loose a hail of fire onto the seafront, tearing through houses and temples and killing many inhabitants. Relations with the people of Calicut were beyond repair, so Cabral left and headed back to Portugal. Despite this incident, the voyage of Cabral had some successes. Most notably, amicable relations were made with the kings of two other Indian ports, Cananor and Cochin, who were on bad terms with the Zamorin of Calicut. A party of Portuguese were left at Cochin to establish a factory there and it was near here that the Portuguese first met authentic Indian Christians, two priests. The Portuguese were no doubt pleased, yet this may have been the moment when they finally realised of the nature of Hinduism as a completely separate religion from either Christianity or Islam. Far from being a majority population, the priests revealed that the Christian following in India was very small, and almost all trade along the coast was in the hands of Muslims. The other significance of Cabral's journey was that on their outward journey, while swinging their ships into the western Atlantic to catch the western winds, they had stumbled across the coastline of Brazil. Unaware of the significance at the time, this was the first recorded voyage of the Europeans in that part of the world. Yet King Manuel was displeased with the results of Cabral's expedition. Hundreds of sailors and half the fleet had been lost, and no Christian kingdom was discovered. What's more, the Zamorin of Calicut had turned out to be a heathen, spurning his gifts and killing his men. 
Manuel wanted vengeance and to crush all Islamic influence in the Indian Ocean. The next fleet to set sail from Lisbon in 1502, led once more by Vasco da Gama, would be the largest yet, and its captains given explicit instructions to use violence and intimidation to achieve their goals. Already as they sailed by East Africa, a new, more aggressive strategy towards the local leaders became clear. As the Portuguese arrived at the island of Kilwa, a wealthy trading post off the coast of present-day Tanzania, they immediately started firing off cannons. Intimidated by the massive show of force, the Sultan submitted and agreed to give de Gama the right to trade in gold and to pay a considerable annual tribute to the King of Portugal. It was an act of complete humiliation. Manuel also gave instructions to block Muslim shipping between Mamluk territory in Arabia and the Red Sea in India. The most notorious incident was an attack on a ship called the Miri. This vessel was returning from the Red Sea with about 240 men, women and children, many of whom had been on pilgrimage to Mecca. Much to de Gama's surprise, the crew of the Miri, despite carrying cannon, surrendered without a fight, expecting to be robbed, but no more. Instead, de Gama intended to destroy the ship. First it was stripped of all its rudder and tackle, set alight and as the passengers desperately tried to put out the fire, they were fired upon. For several days the helpless ship was followed until it was finally sunk. Some of the passengers leapt into the sea with hatchets to attack the Portuguese, but they were all killed in the water. Almost all the rest, nearly 300 men and women, were drowned. Vasco de Gama's only small sign of mercy was to let live about 17 children who he had baptised and the ship's pilot, a hunchback, who was kept for his sailing knowledge. The Portuguese captain sent a message to the Zamorin, explaining how the attack on the Miri had been revenge for the Portuguese murdered in Calicut. It was also a message of intimidation to any persons considering putting up resistance against the might of Portugal. The problem was that such an aggressive strategy risked turning the locals against them. Fortunately for the Portuguese, though, they found a reliable ally in the local ruler of Cochin, a major trading post south of Calicut. Its king was a sworn enemy of the Zamorin of Calicut, and was prepared to work with the newcomers for the sake of a good trading agreement. All along the Malabar coast developed a growing tension between the Hindu kings and their Muslim trading subjects as to whether or not to side with the Portuguese. The Portuguese still only held a few toeholds on the coastline, and success was by no means guaranteed. If the Indians were willing to unite, they might be able to fend off the invaders, and the main centre of resistance was located at Calicut. The Portuguese strategy at Calicut was to blockade the city until the Zamorin gave in to all his demands. Negotiations dragged on as the Zamorin tried to play for time while trying to find an ally among his neighbours. Then early one morning, de Gama, in his ship, the Flor de la Mar, stationed by the port of Calicut, saw a number of rowing boats make their way out towards them. At first he thought the boats were probably carrying the goods he had demanded from the Zamorin. Instead, when the two leading boats opened fire, it became clear his ships were being ambushed. The Portuguese desperately tried to flee, but the winds dropped. The sail sagged, and the Indian rowing boats began to swarm around him. It was only sheer chance that saved the Gama ship. 
The separate Portuguese fleet happened to arrive at that same moment, and when they were close enough they opened fire with their big guns, and the Indians scattered and returned to the town. Da Gama was furious for letting himself fall into a trap, yet apart from this instant his second expedition of 1502 to 1503 had been a resounding victory. He arrived back in Lisbon with ships laden with spices and tribute from India and East Africa. The man chosen to take over leadership of the Portuguese campaign was a 55-year-old nobleman by the name of Don Francisco de Almeida, who already had wide military, diplomatic and nautical experience. Almeida was not just to be a captain major, but a viceroy granted executive power to grant in the king's place. One more important Portuguese commander to make his way to India at this time was a veteran, 50-year-old commander by the name of Alfonso de Albuquerque. Albuquerque was of middling height, with a ruddy complexion, a large nose and a long beard. He was known for his personal courage and sheer force of personality. Earlier in his career, he had fought with distinction on crusades against Morocco, and also helped fend off the Ottoman attack on the Toronto in Italy in 1481. In his Indian expedition of 1503, he engaged in several battles against the forces of the Zamorin of Calicut. He also helped secure the King of Cochin's position on his throne, and in return was given permission to build the first Portuguese fort in India, in Cochin. This marked a significant milestone in the Portuguese imperial adventure as the first solid foothold on Indian soil. In March 1504, the Zamorin of Calicut made one final effort to push back the Portuguese. He assembled a vast army, some 50,000 strong, drawn from his territories and those of his vassal cities, to march on Cochin. The king of Cochin was certain that such an immense army could not be resisted, but the local Portuguese commander, Duarte Pacheo Pereira, with just 150 men, five ships and perhaps 8,000 Cochinese, Pereira was determined to fight. Cochin was situated on a tongue of land, backed by a lagoon and surrounded by mudflats and saltwater creeks. Pereira closely studied the local patterns of tide to predict when each ford would be passable and deployed his ships and men accordingly to meet points of attack. Over four months, the Zamorin mounted seven major assaults, but they all failed. In July 1504, as casualties from battle and cholera mounted, he gave up, withdrew and abdicated his throne to retire to a religious life. News of the Zamorin's defeat sent shockwaves across the Malabar coast. It seemed that the Portuguese were invincible, and defections to their cause quickly grew. The ferocity of the newcomers, the mobility of their ships, and their relish for a fight seemed unstoppable, as far wide as East Africa and southern India. The local Muslim traders became despondent, and many started to head back to Egypt or Arabia, taking their families and goods with them. King Manuel of Portugal was becoming confident of building a permanent occupation of the Malabar coast, his expeditions fuelled by growing profits from the spice trade. In Lisbon he started the construction of a vast new royal palace that overlooked the river and from which the king could watch the wealth of the Indies sail in. 
His capital rapidly rose to become one of the most dynamic and wealthiest of European cities, attracting an influx of human capital from across Christendom to provide expertise for the imperial adventure. One European power, however, was greatly displeased with the state of events. Before the Portuguese had reached India, the Republic of Venice had grown fabulously wealthy, controlling a virtual monopoly on trade between the Levant and Europe. But all that was under threat due to the new trade route developed around the tip of southern Africa. In order to protect their position, the Senate of Venice resorted to collaboration with the Mamluk Sultanate in Cairo. The Venetians were in a particularly delicate position, not wanting to be seen to be siding with the infidel, but neither wanting to lose the advantages they enjoyed from the spice trade. The Mamluks had seized control of Cairo in 1250, and ever since been a major power, owning territory not only in Egypt, but also along the Arabian coast of the Red Sea and in the Levant, the region of modern-day Lebanon and Israel. At its height, the Sultanate had led a golden age of medieval Egypt, but at the turn of the 16th century was in a period of instability. It faced growing tensions with the Ottomans, threats to the pilgrim routes to Mecca and Medina from Bedouin tribesmen, and though the Portuguese were threatening to cut off their access to lucrative spice trade of India. The Mamluk Sultan, Al-Ashraf Kansu Al-Gawari, was furious at the attacks upon his fellow Muslims throughout the Indian Ocean by the Portuguese. Contemporary Arab chronicles describe the outrage at the systematic violence targeted at Muslim traders and pilgrims. Quote, hindering them on their journeys, particularly to Mecca, destroying their property, burning their dwellings and mosques, seizing their ships, defacing and treading underfoot their archives and writings, slaying also the pilgrims to Mecca, openly uttering execrations upon the prophet of God, binding them with ponderous shackles, beating them with slippers, torturing them with fire. In short, in their whole treatment of the Muslims, they proved themselves to be devoid of compassion. As thousands of traders arrived in Cairo with horrific stories of Portuguese aggression, and when the rulers of Yemen and Gujarat appealed for help, the Sultan had no choice but to act. On the diplomatic front, the Sultan sent a Venetian envoy to the Pope, and then on to King Manuel, threatening to destroy the holy places of Jerusalem, unless the Portuguese withdrew from the Indian Ocean. Manuel refused point-blank to give in to blackmail. He sent a message back to the Sultan, threatening a crusade of his own if the holy places were harmed. Drawing on the memory of Portuguese crusading history, he declared he would utterly destroy the infidel. The Sultan's threat not only strengthened the resolve of King Manuel to seize control of the Indian Ocean, but encouraged a yet grander ambition, to destroy the Mamluks and recapture the Holy Land for Christendom. Such a plan was outlined in an address made to Pope Julius II in early June 1505. Quote, Christians may therefore hope that shortly all the treachery and heresy of Islam will be abolished and the holy sepulchre of Christ, which has for a long time been trampled and ruined by these dogs, will be returned to its former liberty and in this way the Christian faith will be spread throughout the whole world. End quote. A maritime empire in India was no longer an end in itself, but was to be a platform for an attack against the Mamluks. 
If all went to plan and Islam was destroyed and trade across the Red Sea was in Christian hands, the Portuguese would no longer require their sea route around Africa. Pope Julius, persuaded of this opportunity to take on Islam, granted Manuel a crusading tax for two years and remission of sins for all those who engaged in it. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to help support it, the best way would be to become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com. By pledging $3 a month, you will also receive access to bonus material, such as extra episodes, and also receive regular episodes a week in advance and without any adverts. If interested, please visit patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and search for History of Europe Key Battles podcast. A way you could help for free if you like the podcast is to give it a review on iTunes or another podcatcher. Remember, you can always get in touch on the Facebook page, at Twitter, at History Europe KB, or the blog, www.historyeurope.net, or email me directly at carl at historyeurope.net. I hope you can join me next week for the naval battle of Dieu, where the forces of the Mamluks confront the Portuguese to fight over control of the Indian Ocean and its trade. Until then, have a great week and goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 